Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Special guest, his name is Uli Korch. Now that's German. Uli, U L I, Korch, K O R T S C H. And I'm going to have him start by just telling us about him, his life. Uli, we're so honored to have you on. Thank you for being on with us. I want you to take the first 60, 120 seconds, whatever, and just tell us about your life, who you are, where you were born, schooling, family, etc. And then we're going to jump right into today's topic. Go ahead, Uli. Welcome. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate this. Um, yeah, I was born in Germany, grew up in Germany, Ger- German parents. <clears throat> and then um, my, my parents immigrated to Canada. Uh, I went to University of Alberta uh, in radiation chemistry, ran a nuclear accelerator, uh, developed some fancy schmancy stuff, printed, um, you know, published the the research that we did, and uh, walked out of that and joined YWAM Youth of the Mission for 20 years, and uh, became more and more concerned about the whole economic scene, especially with poverty. I walked out, got another degree, and um, got involved in economics. Um, ran a, was asked to run a conference at the Federal Reserve Bank, which I did uh, 10 years ago, and then also in Switzerland to change the constitution of the country, and then also in Greece to do the same kind of thing under the auspice of the governor of the Bank of Greece. Put out two books, um, which deal with changes in monetary structure that I believe are absolutely essential. The first book is basically an overview of the conference at the Federal Reserve Bank. And then the second book, uh, both of them start with the next money crash dash. The first one is the next money crash dash and how to avoid it. And I came to the conclusion we're not going to avoid it. So the, the second book is the next money crash dash and a reconstruction blueprint. This is what we need to do. You, you amaze me. I, I've always been fascinated with the fact that Madonna was able to reinvent herself and has about seven or eight different lives. You, you, you may have done seven or eight, but my goodness, you just described some significant career changes. You, you've had about yes. four or five lives. Yeah, yeah I have, yes. Quite, quite stunning what you've done, what you've accomplished. I'm going to ask a very broad question and just turn you loose. Willie, what, where do we stand economically in America? Uh, what about uh, central banking digital currency? Uh, where are we in terms of an economic crash? If so, what do we do? Uh, I'm going to throw it wide open. What is the status of economics, not only in our country, but in the world? Right. Uh, I'll, I'll give, you, give you all the answers. <laughs> I'll, I'll do, do it the best all. I can. <laughs> um, I, I, so I'll center it on the U.S. initially. I, I'm not an optimist. Um, uh, I am an optimist as to who we are as people and what God has led us to and will continue to. But what it is that we've done historically, especially over the last um, 20 or 30 years, or even since World War II, uh, is, is um, not very exemplary. Let's put it this way. I, th- I think the the biggest problem comes down to debt and our inability to constrain our own spending uh, debt all that is is pulling forward capacity uh, services production etc into the present and so when we accumulate debt we destroy the future and um destroy might be too strong a word but we you know we we grab a hook hook that future and and pull it towards us and we say we want it now and let the future take care of itself and um that mindset um is going to come home to roost at some point we're we now have a debt of about uh, 33 trillion I know that's a number with a whole bunch of zeros. Let me, I think I can explain to you what a trillion dollars is. I, I think I got this worked out. I know it's the one with a whole bunch of zeros, and that's meaningless for all of us. If you were to spend $1 million every single day of the year, I think most of us can get our head around a million. So it's, you know, most of us, especially in the US. In what year would you have had to start so that by today you would have spent $1 trillion? Well, you can get your calculator. I'll, I'll help you. 
you would have had to start in the year 500 before Christ. And that is one. That's only one. On the books, we owe 33. In actual fact, we owe in the neighborhood of 200 and 210 to 250 trillion. You never see that printed, almost never. The reason is the way governmental bookkeeping works. Uh, do, you, I, do you want me to? Do you want me to very quickly say this or not? I, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's extremely important. All right, let, let, let me explain how how the government keeps its books versus the way you and I do. So let, let, let's round numbers. Let's say we want to buy a house, and we go out and borrow, get a loan for four hundred thousand. I'm I'm just drawing numbers. So let's say your monthly payment is $5,000 a month for interest and principal. And again, just round numbers. And um, so so what you do is you, first month you make the payment, the second month you make the payment, third month, uh, okay, we'll start with the bad guy being the guy first. Okay, you say to your wife, you know, we've got this wonderful house, but our car is a piece of junk. Honey, let's go out and buy a car. So what you do, you say, okay, I'm gonna put, uh, I've got a little bit of money, I'm gonna put some money on the credit card, so so you still got three thousand left after you buy the car and you put two thousand on your credit card but you make a five thousand dollar payment the next month uh the wife says hey honey you know you got your car i want my kitchen and so you do the same thing again and and so let's say for a year you make your credit card payments every single your mortgage payments every single month but you've added ten thousand dollars in credit card debt okay nice round numbers so at the end of the year what is it that you and I owe? Well, we owe $400,000 on the mortgage. Okay, maybe we paid 500 in principal. Can we just count that to zero just, just for simplicity? And on top of that, we owe $10,000 on the credit card. So you and I would say we now owe 410,000, right? Okay, let's, revert. let's say that I'm the government. If I'm the government and I did exactly the same thing, how much would I owe? I only owe 10,000. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. Because I put $10,000 on my government credit card. And you say, well, the government doesn't have a credit. Yes, it does. They're called treasuries. The government only, quote, owes what it has issued in, in treasuries. It does not, quote, owe what it has contracted to pay. That blows people's mind. I just told you what a trillion is, you know, back to 500 BC. Okay, so that kind of puts some of this into context. So, uh, uh, well, debt. What, what it, for the government, what is that that is contracted to pay? Uh, retirement funds, uh, Medicare, uh, these long term contracts. Social Security. Social Security. Yeah, long term contracts that uh, are not counted, quote, as debt because the 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 treasuries have not been issued. Yes. Mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Yes, it is. Now, as we keep on accumulating debt, um, so today we're at about 33 trillion. So let's see, how many years back, back to the, the days of the Neanderthals, if we're to, to pay, pay a million dollars a day? Um, the problem is the interest rate keeps on keeps on rising. We, we've really seen that lately. We now spend, on average, the round numbers, per year about the same amount of interest as we do for the military. There's no room. There's absolutely no room. And the problem is that this it's compounding. This is not a, this is not linear. This is not a straight line. This is compounding, and the curve gets steeper and steeper. Um, because the the interest the, the debt is accumulating, so therefore the interest also is out automatically. All right, um, we have we have two two different problems. So there's the monetary side and the fiscal. Fiscal is what the government quote spends. Okay, I, I'm, and then monetary is the way our whole system works. Let me go back to just for a second what the government spends. So. Um, this fiscal year, which just uh, started, uh, we're going to run a deficit of about uh, two trillion. There's a difference between. Explain the difference. Explain the word. I know what you're saying, but explain the word deficit so everybody. I was just about to go there. So okay. the difference, the deficit, is the amount that we 
overspend every year versus the amount of money that comes in. Okay. The debt is the accumulated total of all of the annual deficits. But I want to talk to you about the deficits because that also is not really true, what I just said. So we're going to have a, a $2 trillion on the books deficit this year, roughly. But in actual fact, you'll see that the debt will increase by substantially more than $2 trillion. You say, how, how is that possible? I thought we only, I thought the whole was only $2 trillion. No, uh, it's going to be about 15% or 20% more. So in actual fact, instead of the debt increasing by, quote, the deficit of $2 trillion, it's going to increase by about $2.3, trillion, because there are a whole bunch of things that are not, quote, on the balance sheet. And again, these things are hidden. So you can go back year after year after year, and you can see what was, quote, the deficit and what was the actual increase in debt. Not the same thing. Always, the increase in debt is always much bigger. Oh, the games we play, the games we play. The, um, Is that accurate to say, or maybe you'll get to this? The reason this doesn't get stopped, the reason 535 people in Congress do not stop this is because the American people have learned to do what, what was it, Thomas Jefferson hoped they would not learn to do uh, beyond the take from the national tale. You, you, you better believe it. It's, um, um, I think it was Draghi in Europe. Uh, um, I, I think, anyway, one of the statements he made is we are not stupid. We know what to do, but we would never be elected again. That goes back to what you just said, Jim, that because we, we are on the take from the government, we expect the government to pay us. And that ultimately ends up in a national, in a national bankruptcy. Yeah. Keep walking us forward on this. What's the implications of this? How, how maybe you can't answer this question. How long can this be sustained? What does this mean? I, I suspect I'm with you, but to our children and grandchildren, what does this really mean? Does this plunge us in, in, into a, a, a third world country at some point, eventually? And then take, eventually, it, at some point, take it further, take us to global death. Yeah, because because we, we are the behemoth on the block. We're the biggest guy around. Um, and everything today is global. Let, let me go back to bankruptcy uh, to quote a good friend of mine, Ernest Hemingway. Well, that's right. He's not a friend of mine. <laughs> He's been dead a long time. He was asked, how do you go bankrupt? Oh, he said, slowly and then suddenly. That's exactly how it is. Let, let, let's talk about banks just for a minute. So Lehman Brothers, the big collapse in during the crash of 2007-2008, three days before they went bankrupt, they were given a clean bill of health. How do you go bankrupt? Slowly and then suddenly. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank this year went bankrupt. Uh, something like two days. Again, it was on a. I think they, they declared bankruptcy on a Sunday night. So I think it was on a Friday or a Thursday. They were in quote good health as a bank. That's how you go bankrupt. Slowly and then suddenly. It's it's the same with us as the U.S. Uh, for the first time in a long time. Uh, all the way back to probably 15, 20 years when this, the topic that you and I are talking about right now was a big deal. For the first time this morning in the Wall Street Journal, I read an article, the first one for a very long time, I know I've said this three times now, where they're saying Wall Street is beginning to wonder whether they can handle the amount of treasuries being issued by the federal government at quote, reasonable interest rates. In other words, non-third rate interest rates. It's the first article I've seen for, for years saying, you know, there is an end to this. Um, and um, it's, not, it's not a pretty end. Okay, what happens? Um, the, the normal thing, historically normal last 500 years, and, and there are also studies on this, is that uh, we get into a hyperinflationary kind of environment where, where the government starts, quote, printing money. Uh, technically, that's illegal in the United States. Technically, it's illegal for the Federal Reserve Bank to do that um, uh, because the word printing 
we don't actually put money on the street. Let me be, that, that's technical. I, I'm very happy to go back there, but let me finish the, the thought here. Um, <clears throat> historically, what has happened is we get into a hyperinflationary mode. We've seen that in France, we've seen that in Germany, we've seen that in, in Spain, we've seen that in, in Italy, we've seen all sorts of different countries. Um, and the thinking is that the US will probably do the same thing. Uh, and I would say 80%, that's probably true. There's an alternative, which is a deflationary spiral. Um, and for the last 150 years, every single financial crash the US has ever had has been deflationary. And, and the two are radically different in how they operate and in what you should do personally to protect yourself. So therefore, I'm saying I haven't got a clue what's going to happen. My thinking is also it's going to be inflationary. So just, okay, so let's just talk what that means. So if you have a mortgage, you don't have to pay it off. That's what hyperinflation really means. Your mortgage all of a sudden is, is nothing. Uh, so, so Germany during the well, 20s. This, this when, then you don't have to pay it off. You, like you're saying it's, it's shrinking in size. It's shrinking in size so much it could be within weeks that it, it, you can pay your, your, your mortgage off with the equivalent of what today is $10. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in my second book, I give a story. So like, you know, say I'm German. A, a man uh, who was in the sort of upper middle class in Germany had saved enough money for his retirement for the rest of his life, taking care of himself really, really well. Absolutely no problem financially. Hyperinflation hit Germany. Um, and he decided that um, he was going to spend his money. He spent his life's saving and he bought a ticket to take the bus or the tram, but let's call it a bus, around the city. That was his whole life saving. It was one, one ticket. He did the tour around the city went back to his apartment, locked the door. He didn't commit suicide. He starved to death. Mm. Complete collapse of all of society. So mm -hmm. we need to understand the power of this. So on a deflationary, so that's the inflationary side. On the deflationary side, we're back to the 1930s. The 29, the 29 crash here in the United States, which then went global, not quite the same way, but but to, to a large extent. Uh, and what happens there is the is the exact opposite. Uh, so all of a sudden, your four hundred thousand um, dollar, pardon me, I just need some water here. Your your four hundred thousand dollar mortgage that I mentioned earlier is all of a sudden worth four million or forty million, uh, be, because the because of what happens to the value of money. Um, like I said, I don't think that's the way we're going to go because that doesn't take care of government debt. And what the government's going to do is try, try to take care of their, their own debt, uh, through, um, actions that they're going to take with, with the Fed, um, or, you know, people keep on bringing up this trillion dollar coin. I mean, that it's a massively inflation, you know, it's ridiculous. We're going to create a coin which is going to print $1 trillion on it. Therefore, it has a value of $1 trillion. That's the definition of fiat. We say we have fiat money. Fiat simply means I, the government, tell you that's what it, that's what it means. That's all, that's all fiat means. Uh, does that um, give you enough? Uh, no, no, keep, uh, keep going. The obvious question then is, you said a moment ago, you don't have any idea which way this is going to go, but the average person listening is thinking, what do I do? How do you respond to that? Um, what works, what works in a both inflationary and deflationary cycle are things, physical assets, because the value, the quote, the value of money can go up and down like crazy. And, and right, right now it is, um, but the value of a thing does not change. It still has an inherent value. So I was in Argentina during the hyperinflation uh, of uh, 40 years ago, 35 years ago, whenever I was there. Um, and what people would do is they'd go out and buy a washing machine, you know, or a refrigerator, doesn't matter what it is. 
you don't need it. You could already have three washing machines. But you realize that the washing machine will always be a washing machine. And at some point, somebody's going to want to buy it. And then whatever quote the supposed monetary value is, that's what you end up getting. I'll never forget, I went to a store and there was a Fisher Price um, toy set that was for sale. And old money and new money was still in circulation. And what they did is they dropped two zeros off old money. So a dollar was all of a sudden worth, you know, one cent, one penny. All right. And so I looked at the price and I couldn't figure out what it meant. The Fisher Price set cost either a dollar or twenty-five or $125, neither of which made any sense to me. And, and, and this is the problem with both deflationary and inflationary cycles. The, the quote, price of something, we cannot tell what it means anymore. Now, that, that's a really strong example, but that happened physically to me. I, I'll never forget standing in front of the store window, and this is what I experienced. But it only costs a dollar twenty-five. That—that—that's crazy. Costs one hundred twenty-five dollars. That's really crazy. Well, well, which of the two is it? I don't know. So what we, an economist, call price discovery, becomes basically impossible, uh, and it also does at zero interest rates. Um, let me go back to inflation just for a minute to explain to people what what it really means. Um, we have what's called the 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 for the 72 72 formula um if you take a an investment or inflation they they work in opposite direction but kind of the same idea whatever the interest is if you divide it by 72 it gives you the number of years in which it doubles or halves, depending on. So let's talk about inflation. So the federal government is trying to have an inflation of 2%. We're trying to get it down to that, right? Because they figure that's a, it's a really good number. And there are reasons for that, but whatever. I, I don't agree with those reasons, but nonetheless. Um, what that means is the average person during their lifetime loses 80% of the value of their money. Here's the math. Repeat the last sentence. The, the law of 72 says that at a 2% inflation rate, which is this wonderfully, really incredibly good low inflation rate, you and I are going to lose 80% of the value of our money. Let me explain. So you take the number 2 and you divide 72 by 2. That's 36. So what that means is in 36 years, you'll, your money will lose 50% of its value. You're not left with 52. You go another... 36 years, and you're going to lose 50% of that 50%. You're now down to 25%. Well, most of, most of us don't die at the age of 72. So let's say you die at the age of 80, something like that. You're going to lose 80% of the value of money at 2%. When inflation is 10%, which it was last year, that means the same thing happens in 7.2 years, which means in 14 and a half years, you will have lost 75% of the value of your money. That's the law of 72. Very, very simple. By the way, uh, investments work the same way. So let, let's say you, you have an investment and, and the investment gets whatever, 5%. Take the percent that you're getting divided by 72 and it gives you the number of years to, it, which it takes in order for your investment to double. Same, same, same math. Same math. So. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so even when, quote, in, inflation is at, quote, zero, which is what we call 2% now, you're still you're still losing eighty percent during the during during your lifetime. Well, you just you're bringing so much good news to us. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just so <laughs> full of good news. <laughs> okay, back to things. Yes. Okay. You, you notice the uh, so what happens as that inflation progresses, house prices increase, um, but the the and so do cars and everything else. But but the problem is there's an ancillary to this. Um, which is what we tend to call financialization. Because we uh, have trouble more and more understanding what's, what a price tag actually means, okay? So we now think a car that costs $50,000 isn't too much. Well, $30,000, that's really cheap. I'm going, what? What? 
You know, I remember, I remember when I was a teenager, you could buy a really hot car for $2,000. I mean, bang, a fantastic machine, could not afford it. So because we don't understand prices anymore, we have financialization. Let me give you a, everything is now in terms of dollars for us in the US. So let, let me give you an example. Um, 40 years ago, whatever, I'm just picking a number out of the hat. You could easily have a middle-class lifestyle with a family and three kids, and all it took was the man to be working, right? The woman could be at home taking care of the house and the children and whatever needed to be done. It's basically impossible to do that today. Today, the husband and the wife have to work, and you still have trouble having, quote, a, a sort of middle-of-the-road lifestyle. Um, because so the, the the neighbor's kid would babysit for you for your kids you know the neighbor's teenager and you pay them some money what i mean today it's like 20 bucks an hour um on and on and on the um the the the, the value that we put on good goods, good services. I don't care whether you're talking about healthcare, babysitting, or getting a book at the library. It, all of this is measured in terms of money. So it's what I'm calling the financialization. We have lost the capacity as people to simply interact as people because we feel we can't afford it. Now, a lot of, a lot of this is our own expectation. I, I agree, okay. You know, I want a bigger house, I want two cars, I want my holiday home, I want, you know, whatever, okay. Um, but, it, but it is the nature of driving uh, an economy based on debt, based on pulling the future forward, because what we've consumed today does not exist in the future anymore tomorrow and i am always running to catch up and by the way that's why i got into monetary which is that's related but it's not into economics versus finance this is more sort of the finance side um do you want me to expand on yes. that what, what yes, I would sure you do. Wish? I sure do keep rolling going okay um, so, so I told you I was in, in YWAM Youth of the Mission as a missionary for 20 or 22 years. And um, for the last five years of that time, roughly, um, I became conscious of the fact that, especially in the developing world, so I've worked in over 60 countries, I don't know how many countries, and I see people in the developing world, especially, who are not stupid, uh, who are not lazy, who are working 10 hours a day, seven days a week, and have trouble taking care of their kids and putting decent food on the table. Now I'm saying to myself, there's something fundamentally wrong in the way the whole economy is structured because the, the, these people, like I just said, they're not stupid, they're, they're not lazy. So what, what is the problem? I started wrestling with this and I started talking about it um, publicly uh, and people say, well, hey, Uli, well, what, what's the answer? I don't know, I don't have any answers. And um, 11, I think it was Christmas 11 years ago, um, we, were, we were in the, in the Colorado, Colorado Rockies, it's a mouthful, uh, which is where, we, where I live now, but we didn't live there then. And, and we had a, um, in the snow, a Christmas holiday with the kids, rented a big chalet and stuff and had, had a wonderful time. <clears throat> and I, I still remember sitting at this big rough hewn wooden table and I had this download, I really believe from God, as to how to restructure our whole society from a financial perspective and um all right i'll give you a little bit more of that um <clears throat> spend the next month making all sorts of notes i ended up with several pages of single point form notes of what it would solve this problem it would solve this problem i couldn't believe it never talked to anybody at the end of that at the end of january i said to myself you know this is really crazy <laughs> it's really crazy i think it was god i think i'm smart but for me to think that, you know, I can sort of reinvent the economic system, that, that's really, really stupid. I mean, come on, of course, you know, who, who do you think you are? 
And so I started searching for a macroeconomist that I could run this by. At the end, I ended up finding somebody who was in Argentina during the crash and he said, hey, Oli, I'm going to be close to where you live. I said, well, come to my house. I need about an hour and a half. And, and I walked him through my four pages of how this would work and what the impact would be. I'll never forget what he said. <laughs> he said at the end of the hour and a half, he said, you know, Oli, I really like you. You're a really nice guy, but you're, you're totally out of your mind. You're out of your mind. I thought, oh, I thought, I thought this was a really good idea. Two days later, he called me back and he says, Oli, I have thought of nothing, nothing but what we, this is unbelievable. Man, would this ever work? Oh my goodness, we have got to do this. What are we going to do? So then I had a, I was on a American think tank and the chairman was the runner up to be president of the Federal Reserve Bank. And so I had a private cell phone number. I called him. I said, hey, um, I got some stuff I'm going to go through with you. I need about an hour and a half. He says, okay, look, I'm really busy. It's got to be really early in the morning. I said, okay, fine. I hate that, but okay, let's, let's do it. So I went into this for about 15 minutes and he said, stop, stop. He says, I know exactly where you're going. That's for sure in economics. Uli, I'm the chairman of a bank. We have got to do this because I want to save my bank. We've got to do this. Okay, what are we going to do? And that's how I got invited to the run, run the conference at the Fed. Um, Basically, the issue again comes down to debt. Uh, essentially, 100% of our money is created through debt. Um, with, uh, when, whenever you take a, uh, it's going to drive most people crazy. Whenever you take a loan out at the bank, the bank does not recirculate money that has been deposited. Where did that money come from? Um, now this, right let, here, let, let, this right here. You and I talked about in Guadalajara, Mexico last week. Exactly. I want exactly. you to go through this with our people and go slowly. Okay. Uh, this is this is important. Folks, uh, fasten your seatbelts. If this may be an old old news to a few of you, but to most of us, this is uh, we all know fractional banking. We get that, but this is this goes beyond just that. So listen to what Bully's about to say. Okay, let, let me let me first walk you through what what you're told happens. <laughs> so um, so here's a guy works for Ford Motor Company and he wants to buy a car. So he's got a little bit of money. He goes to the bank and he says, "I need to borrow thirty thousand dollars to buy my car." And they look said, "Okay, uh, cool, no no problem. Here's the thirty thousand dollars." <throat> and and so he takes a little bit of his money and the thirty thousand goes to the Ford dealer, and the Ford dealer takes his money and gives 30,000 of that to Ford Motor Company because of the car that, that's been sold. And wasn't the guy lucky Ford Motor Company happens to bank at the very bank at which he got the $30,000 loan. And, and so Ford Motor Company deposited the 30,000 and because the bank had the 30,000 from Ford, he was able to borrow the $30,000. Except not, none of that is true. That's not how it works at all. Let's, let's start from the beginning. Same guy goes to the bank and they, they look at his credit score and all that kind of stuff. Says, okay, cool. You, you can, you, you, we'll, we'll lend you the money. The bank signs a contract. The bank is now out of balance. The contract is an asset to the bank and it's debt to the buyer, to the car buyer, to the guy who gets the money, correct? In order to offset the accounting in the bank, the bank deposits $30,000 into his account. Where did that 30,000 come from? Nowhere. The $30,000 is a debit to the bank and the account is an asset. The bank is now balanced. Repeat that. All the rest is- They say that last sentence, repeat that. The $30,000 is a- the the contract is an asset to the bank because it will collect on that. The 30,000 deposit in the man's account is a debit. Okay. That money came from nowhere. It was created like this. See my fingers? My fingers on a, an imaginary keyboard. Click, 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 $30,000. Click, 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 a million dollars. Click, 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 a billion dollars. That's how we create money. Now, Let's 
sort of gets a little bit crazier. Let's go all the way around the circle. And uh, let's say at the end of the year, the man had a really good year and he, 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 he was a bit of a strange contract. He never had to make any payments all year, okay? And, he, and the interest rate was 10%, nice round, even number. So how much does he owe at the end of the year? He owes $33,000. $30,000 for the principal and 10% interest on, on, on the 30 is three. So he owes $33,000. What happens? He goes to the bank and hey, a fantastic year. Here's, all, here's my $33,000. The $3,000 is income to the bank on money that the bank created itself. Are you ready? The 30,000, poof, it's gone. It didn't exist to begin with, and it doesn't, be, doesn't exist after it's finished. Now you think I'm really crazy, I'm dreaming this up, no. So uh, back to Guadalajara, was Jim was just mentioning. So I gave multiple quotes from central banks around the world, including the US Federal Reserve Bank that says, this is what we do. This is how it actually works. Your obvious question might be, well, what stops the bank from just creating a trillion dollar for itself? Ah, we do have rules. And there are various ratios that the bank has to keep beyond which it cannot go. Okay. So uh, it, it, that's why in an inflationary time, like right now, the reason we raise interest rates, which is counterintuitive because and the interest rate is the cost of money is it not it, it's a cost right so inflation increases costs so now we're also going to increase the cost of money that's stupid that's backwards it ought to be the other way around by the way some people anyway let's not go there um the reason is when we increase the interest rate you and i do not want to go out and borrow more money and that stops the increase of money in circulation and that ultimately creates a pressure and lowers the inflation as it is happening right now. Inflation is lower. That's not the only effect, but that's a that's a huge effect. Um, the effect of this <clears throat> creates inequality, pressure, financialization that I mentioned earlier when I was talking to you about. And we must have an ever increasing amount of debt. Let's go back to the guy with the car. Okay. So we created $30,000 so we can get the car. And at the end, we destroyed the money. However, that 30,000 was in circulation during that time. So somebody else better go out and borrow the same amount of money. So we have to have an ever increasing amount of debt. And there's another problem. If you thought about this logically, it's not fair because you've only had, you know, three minutes to think about this. So I have a question for you. Where did the $3,000 come from that, that paid for the interest? Well, somebody else had to borrow it. And on and on and on and on. Now, um, during good times, we can cover that through what's called velocity. Velocity is simply the number of times a particular piece of money is used. Okay. So if, if I give you $100 and you hide it under the uh, under the mattress, then that, that's a velocity of zero. If you go out and spend it once, and it, that guy puts it under the mattress, that's a velocity of one, and so on. If you go out and buy bubble gum with it, and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that, that's velocity. So um, we can cover the debt with velocity. The problem is, here in the United States, because of the pressure that we're under, velocity has plummeted over the last few years. We're now at a... a 1.1% times roughly. That means we're not able to cover that anymore. So how do we cover the interest now? Through defaults, through bankruptcies, through negative things happening, whereby the amount of money stays in circulation. And so does the asset, but the debt is, is released and, and the, the money stays there. Okay. So in other words, our monetary system demands those, those kinds of pressures, okay? And, and you don't see them. As a matter of fact, um, most bankers don't understand what I just said. So the, I gave an example, this happened to be, so um, I'll keep the country. So one of the biggest bankers in the world, one of the, I don't wanna mention his name, one of the top people in the world, was on a public television interview with with one of the uh, economists that I work with, and 
who started challenging him asked you what it is I'm talking about right now. And it became very obvious that this is the CEO of one of the largest banks in the world had absolutely no idea what actually happens in the back end from an accounting perspective. And he was challenged on this. And finally he said, oh, look, I don't care what the theory is. I just really know how to run a bank. I know how to make a lot of money as a banker. So the next morning, I happened to be with the, the, the president of the National Bankers Association and the president of the CFA, that's a society that, 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 that kind of like the Bar Association for Finance. And the, the two of them were like, can you believe this guy? Can you running one of the biggest banks in the world? He has absolutely no idea what actually happens in the background. That's how it works. And uh, by the way, I still have yet to see a, an economics textbook, a university economics textbook that properly teaches this in spite of the fact that the Federal Reserve has issued public papers saying this is how it actually works the way I just described. The, uh, I want to think of Adam Smith's classic, what was it, 1776, The Wealth of Nations? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're talking about the invisible hand of God? Yeah. Economic? What you're describing sounds more like the invisible hand of an evil one. <laughs> it, 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 it is. It is. Um, by the way, the prior book that Adam Smith wrote was all about ethics. And his argument was that without ethics, you can't have business, which I totally, totally agree with. Um, but yeah, the invisible hand of, anyway, yeah, oh my goodness, we, we could go on about that one. Um, <clears throat> what, what I'm going to come back to the basics of the average person watching this, they may be either close to retirement or they could be maybe midway through their work experience and they're thinking, I, I don't believe in the word retirement myself. I think that's a four-letter word. I want to keep active for, for my Lord, however I can. Let me, let me, let me help you on that, if, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm really bad on puns. I'm retired, you see. I am re-tired. It means putting new tires on the old body. There we oh, go. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, that worked. That, that worked for me. I just don't think God intended us to get as no. much as we could and then drive around in an RV looking at the Grand Canyon. I, 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 I totally, totally agree with you. Too much yeah. to do. And it, I know. Yeah, I won't get off on that sidetrack. Um, but a person who's trying to provide for themselves and not be an unusual burden to their children, although the scripture does say our children are care for us, I remind my children. With some frequency, uh, your job is to care for me. I care for you, and your job is to care for me. And so when I start slobbering down the right side of my cheek, I'm moving in. Hello, over. <laughs> <laughs> but because the best social security plan God designed is that of kids. kids. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Having said that, <clears throat> what would you counsel the person who's wanting to be a godly? They want to be a good steward over that which God has provided them. God gives them the capacity to gain wealth, according to Deuteronomy 8.18. And we want to be good stewards because it's his. It's not ours, ultimately. He gave us the breath, the life, the creativity, entrepreneurship, etc. And so they want to be good stewards. How do we do that? Uh, I'm not going to ask you what you have done personally because I think that would be kind of unfair to you. If I was in a private conversation, I might do that. But but give us some sense of guidance of what you counsel or advise. And, and I'll just make a disclaimer. This is not a financial advice show, nor is fully a financial advisor. We make no claims to that. But I, as an interviewer, am just asking him um, his potential advice, and no one is obligated to follow it in any way. We, we make all you know, total disclaimer in terms of being a financial advice show. We are not. Yeah, and I'm not a financial that, advisor, as you just said. Yes. That, that, having said bad. that, uh, give us some sense of, of what might be wisdom as stewards of that which God has provided us. Um, let's talk about the stock market. Uh, which is what a lot of people do. I, I'd be very careful with with uh, paper assets. Um, I think we're quite overvalued um, right now with price to earnings ratios. So uh, I, I'd be very careful putting money there. Um, you do need to diversify. Don't feel that you have an answer to 
what it is that needs to be done. Um, so diversify simply means don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's a diversify is a $63 word for <laughs> not, not doing that. Um, if you have a mortgage or car payments, I would suggest, you know, in spite of the fact that I think we are going to go in, into an inflationary mode, I would say, say, pay them off. Um, because it's, it's a risk factor and, um, risk keeping risk low i think is probably especially if you're you know getting to the age where you're thinking of like let's say in the, in the late 50s or 60s or 70s is to de decrease risk as much as possible uh, says me who my wife says to me that i have a way too high a risk tolerance <laughs> um if, if you do want to put something into risk, make sure that, that you, uh, into a risky something, whatever that means, somebody's private business or, or whatever, or your kids, make sure that, that you can afford to lose that. Uh, you know, I think that's a really, um, a, a good, good statement. Um, I would strongly suggest you stay away from paper gold. What in the world is paper gold? There are all sorts of securities that you can, uh, buy supposedly backed by gold. Last I heard, there's about uh, 100 times the amount of paper gold in circulation as there is actual gold. Oh my, oh my. Uh, oh yeah, and, and I, was on the, I was on the board of a, of a uh, gold company uh, for, for, for quite a while. Um, so be really, 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 really careful with paper gold uh, because it can trade, the beauty of it is it can trade really easily. The crazy thing is, at the very moment at which you might need it, you'll you'll, you'll never be able to get it. Uh, um, so and, and investments in in gold or silver, or uh, I'm not talking about collectible coins. I'm talking about just coins in case they needed a silver coin to buy a loaf of bread in the collapse of the company. Do you should should is yeah. that advisable or not? Yeah, yeah, that 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 can work. Um, I recognize gold bars are supposedly considerably more economical to purchase than gold coins, but it's kind of hard to bar barter or, bar or bargain rather in, in gold bars. That, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, gold coins, you can easily pay 200% over the value of the gold at, at any one time because of that. On the other hand, you, you can move them easily at, at a time of problem. Um, there are companies like the company I, I had been with um, who uh, deposit their gold bars in a non-bank depository. The, main, the reason I say non-bank is if when this crash happens, they're going to shut the banks down. You won't be able to get at anything. Uh, the other thing is, uh, again, this particular company, I would suggest you do research onto something like this. They, they will uh, deposit, you can purchase or sell up to four or five decimal points. Uh, so in other words, they own gold bars and then you can put $50 in or, or $100 or whatever, and up to, I can't remember now, it was four or five decimal points, that much per ounce in a particular bar. The bar may be worth $1.2 but uh, you own that small, tiny bit. And because it's in a, in a locked-in depository, you can sell that uh, almost as easily as you can paper gold. But it's a physical asset. It's actually in there. I've been to... I was one of only a, a handful or the second or whatever person I was ever allowed into the gold depository who was not actually an employee there. Um, so, so I took a picture of me in my coat with all these bars behind me and I said to my wife, I'm gonna publish this on Facebook. I mean, total, total joke. She says, oh yeah, oh, absolutely no way you're gonna do that. <laughs> it's rather a stunning picture. Uh, <laughs> Bars, 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 bars behind me, you know. My um, but is that so? One get to that quickly in a, in a moment of a crash. Uh, uh, yeah, because but it's a nice thing you don't have to. It never moves. It never moves. You, 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 you see what I'm trying to say? So, so I can buy I can buy fifty dollars worth of gold out of a bar that's one point two million, and I have that certificate because I know that company actually has all the physical gold at any one time and so therefore i can um i i can um sell that 
certificate to somebody else because it's verified by the company that I'm with. Okay, okay. And that, of course, depends on the integrity of the company, but okay. Uh, oh, yeah, no, no, totally. I, I, I absolutely, totally, totally agree. Uh, if, if people want to contact you, do you have a website they can go to? Uh, yeah, uh, for, for me, you can go to ulicorch.com. <clears throat> okay. Uli? So you, you Uli. Then, sorry, go ahead. Well, okay. K, well, you know how to spell your name. So, so it's, it's U, U L I K O R T S E H dot com. U L I K O R T S E H dot com. Uli, uh, I so appreciate having you on here. Uh, I want you to lead in prayer. I know you got to run, but do a quick prayer for the people who are listening who uh, are, are deeply concerned economically and are experiencing fear for the future. Mm. Would you pray for them? And then we'll bring this to a halt and we'll go back into prayer with everyone else. Lord, thank you. The bottom line of everything we talked about is your character. Is you holding our hand? Is us having a relationship with you and being able to trust you? Yes, through times of difficulty. It, <clears throat> you know, it says all things work together for good. That doesn't mean all things work for good. They work together for good because you deal with us with our heart. And the bottom line is you want to train us to be men and women of God. And so whether we go through or when great joys and great trials, you're always there beside us. And I want to ask you to make that so conscious that we would hear you and know your hand even as we go through great difficulties. We love you. We trust you. We know that it's in who you are in your name that we exist. Thank you so much, Lord. Amen. Oh, thank you, Oli, for and thank you for that prayer. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.